I'm Charlotte Day, I'm the director at MAMA and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to tonight's lecture. Um, we are presenting it with the Saturday paper and the boiler room for tonight is called The Artist as Quarry and it's presented by visiting international curator and writer Terdad Zolgada. Tonight's lecture is presented in association with curatorial practice at Monash University and with our colleagues at the Institute of Modern Art in Brisbane. Before we commence, I'd like to acknowledge the Yalakut Willem of the Boonarung as the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we meet this afternoon. I pay my respects to their ancestors, their families, their elders, and I'd also like to acknowledge the continuing and important um, contribution of Indigenous artists to the art culture of Australia. As Turdut somewhat provocatively states on the flyer for this evening's lecture, artists are always falling prey to something or other. Censorship, curators, particularly bad, bad lighting, jet lag, he's feeling a bit of that, bigotry, cultural prejudice, institutions in particular, and the institution at large. Never are they complicit in any of these things. Rather than tracing examples of when victimisation is real or imagined, Turdad's lecture will map the role and political rationale of self-marginalisation within the moral economy of contemporary art. He will provide speculation how this rationale might be translated into a more meaningful pro professional identity with more tangible political traction over time. As I mentioned, Turdad's lecture is part of the artist as a year-long lecture series co-presented by the IMA in Brisbane and curatorial practice at MARTA. The series examines the way artists move through the world and how that movement might involve adopting other roles to, produce, to pursue a project, a position, a politics or a practice. The artist as also recognises that many artists come to their practice as experts in other fields, bringing with them specialist knowledge that informs and shapes their work. Turdad is a curator and writer. He is associate curator at Kunstwerk in Berlin, director of the Summer Academy Paul Clay in, Ber in Bern and teaches at the Dutch Art Institute in um, Arnhem. His curatorial work includes a number of discrete durational projects and several biennial projects. In 2000, together, together with Nav Hack, he organised the year-long exhibition publishing and research project titled Lapdogs of the Bourgeoisie that set out to investigate the manner in which socio-economic background still defines one's career and to what extent class plays a role in the production, direction, criticality and dissemination of contemporary art. He was co-curator of the International Sharjah Biennial in 2005, the Taipei, Taipei Biennial um, 2010 and curator of the recent fifth Rivak, Rivak? Biennale in Palestine 2014-16. He has published both fiction and non-fiction, with his most recent book described as a curatorial polemic and titled Traction, published by Sternberg Press this year. Following Tudad's presentation of approximately 45 minutes, he will be in conversation with Tara McDowell, Director of Curatorial Practice at MARTA. And Tara's just made it to us tonight. She's about, well not about, very soon to give birth, so we're very glad that she could join us. We hope that she'll be able to keep, keep cool, as long as, no pressure for the duration. 
this evening's lecture will be Auslan interpreted by Sarah Howe. Thank you very much. And by Paul Houston. Thank you. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank M Pavilion for hosting this evening's lecture in this beautiful space and also McLean's Sound for providing AV support. I'd also like to thank Kate Barber, where is she? Kate Barber from Mama, who um, in charge of our public programs, who's done great work bringing this together, but also um, on our boiler rooms across the year. Also, particular thanks to Alan Whedon and Jesse French from M Pavilion, who are um, great to work with, and we really enjoy being able to be involved in this process. So I'll now welcome to them. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction. Thanks for the invitation. It's uh, it's a privilege to be here. Um, first time in Australia. I'm quite overwhelmed. Uh, thank you all for coming. As mentioned, the talk will be 45 minutes, uh, no longer. I promise. And um, uh, it's based it's based on research that has been going on for about three or four years now, and which recently culminated in the book called Traction, Commodified, um, and, and uh, available in bookstores and so forth. Um, it's so the, the, the research is now at a point where um, I'm, I'm able to lay out the argument, the hypothesis, and to, to, to think about it in light of recent experiments and to think about how it's played itself out. Um, and I'm kind of at a point where um, I'm about to put these ideas to uh, to the test within a new professional context in Berlin working with the KW and um, we'll see how that um, plays out. As for um, today, I'm going to try to re reorient the um, hypotheses around the idea of a moral economy towards this notion of the artist as as quarry um, and um, the what I what I eventually would like to get to is the idea that um, um, the, the self-marginalization that is described in the blurb is not um, coincidental. It's actually part of a rationale which plays into um, a larger structure and which empowers the structure and um, allows it to have an incredible degree of traction, but that at the same time disempowers the artist on an individual basis. And that um, this, the, the victimization is to a degree of self-victimization as long as the artist does not attempt to grapple with these, um, the, the, the situation, the, the working ideology in a, in a somewhat foundational manner. Um, so that's quite abstract, but I'll, I'll get to you know more precise points as I go along. So the the um, is it better if I stand up here? Does that make more sense? Um, so the series is called the Artist As, and um, artists can can fulfill a variety of roles potentially. Um, it's they can be anything potentially. And the qualification potentially is very important. Um, it seems almost as if there's an there's an um, a potential imperative uh, 
um, it's almost as if the 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 word as the preposition as um, I think it's a preposition. We th is it a preposition? Um, is 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 kind of at the heart of the matter, the the potential of the artist to be something other than the artist, thereby questioning the category of the artist, seems to be at the, the crux of the very definition of the artist. Um, not only that, it's actually at the, 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 the core, it's at the core of the very definition of uh, contemporary art as we know it. At least that's one of the working hypotheses that I'm gonna argue for today. Um, the belief in the miracle of radical unpredictability is something that uh, contemporary art hinges upon uh, in the sense of a, a radical perhaps. It is in this sense that contemporary art sees itself as indeed the most contemporary of, of all possible genres. Um, just as the world at large is incommensurate and infinitely complex, just as beholden to endless possibility, contemporary art itself um, reflects and even celebrates this notion of you know, the lack of a master narrative, the impossibility of a, a, a totality, um, and thereby becomes the hallmark of the contemporary itself. Um, so what I, what I just described is, is what, I, what I like to call a moral economy um, you could also call it the belief system of a particular habitus. Um, the idea of a moral economy is borrowed from a sociologist called Didier Fassin. It, the advantage is that it insists on the idea of circulation and the fact that certain values and valorizations are more visible in some places more than others, at some moments more than others. Um, but you can also see it as a belief system, and um, it's a belief system that doesn't necessarily what I just described doesn't necessarily have anything to do with empirical reality. Um, it's the funny thing about belief systems is that they allow you to have a huge amount of impact on a world you completely misrepresent. Uh, it, like it doesn't have to have a truth value to, to have this kind of leverage. Um, when it comes to the moral economy I've been describing, um, for, you know, the bound the boundless possibilities of the artist and so forth. Uh, to begin with, there are many things an artist cannot be, um, not potentially and not ever. Um, even a Premier League soccer player demands more. Um, he, the, the job implies a matrix of accountability and specialization that limit our options here. Um, nor can an artist be a subaltern. Because a subaltern, by definition, is someone who is kept or held aside and beneath the privileged position that entitles you to a discourse. As for the discourse artists are entitled to, uh, we may be tempted to think that this idea of boundless uh, possibility is empowering, um, like the Superman cape that my daughter likes to wear. Um, but actually, the, f the, the strange thing is that this idea of boundless possibility, this Superman cape, actually leads to 
a bizarre sense of victimization again and again. Um, it might have been emancipatory. It might have been, um, you know, something which was poetic and productive at one point. But right now, um, I, I, I would argue that it leads to the opposite. Um, and this is an oddity that I'd like to unravel in this lecture. So all professions have their own cultures of complaint. That's very hard to deny. But there's, there's something about the, the tristesse royale of the artist that points, some to, points to something more systemic and maybe more interesting. So they only invited me because I'm Iranian. They'll never invite me because I'm Iranian. The curator didn't even have a minute. The curator won't stop asking questions when you'd want the work to speak for itself. No one understands painting anymore. It's all about painting because the market is totally dominant. Critique is totally institutionalized, so you cannot say anything anymore. Can you believe they're censoring the work? There was no fee, but I was hoping for exposure. There was no fee, but I was hoping for a critical platform from within. And so on and so forth. Um, three points about the, the title, The Artist's Quarry. Um, I didn't choose the term victim because the idea of a victim is etymologically closer to the idea of um, sacrifice and, and martyrdom. Whereas a quarry is more about resources, uh, it has the connotation of hunting. Um, and I think that artists do in, indeed see themselves as the most vulnerable part of a food chain, of a, an apparatus that uh, chews them up and spits them out um, according to necessity. The second point about the, the title that I'd like to make is that um, what I just described is in part real and in part imagined, and we could look at individual cases until the cows come home, but it won't help us look at the uh, common traits, the broad brushstrokes that define our field and our moral economy. Um, and that's what a lecture is, in my opinion, more useful at doing. Um, it's not a studio visit, it's an opportunity to look at patterns um, that are um, depersonalized, or should be depersonalized. Um, and the pa these are patterns of contemporary art, and I need to clarify the contemporary art is not uh, art at large. It's not regional art, traditional art, ritualistic art. All of these traditions are contemporary in their own way, but not in the way that contemporary art is. Contemporary art, as I was mentioning in the beginning, is a genre that fetishizes an supposedly endlessly complex ongoing global condition and celebrates it at the expense of any investment in a viable future. At a pinch, you could say that my effort to demarcate contemporary art is an effort to decolonize other forms of art from contemporary art. The third and last point is that um, the, the pervasive sense of marginalization among artists 
is indeed linked to um, the idea of boundless possibility. And the bridge between these two uh, points is the notion that contemporary art speaks truth to power. It's not power itself, it speaks truth to power. Um, and I'll, I'll explain. I've been showing this um, growing glossary for the last two years or so. Um, I, would, I would write down in my uh, notebook, every time I heard an artist or a curator clearly define a best case scenario for their ongoing project. And I've stopped updating it, but I think that it's, it's really helpful as a didactic tool. Every one of these um, uh, terms have their own history, uh, which point, points in completely different directions. Some of them have very bloody institutional battles behind them. Um, but within the field of contemporary art, they do have a common ground, and that is a turn away from the police order, as Ranciere would put it. They point to a pervasive sense of indeterminacy as the best case scenario and moral horizon. Indeterminacy on pretty much all levels, in terms of what political action is, in terms of what an exhibition does, in terms of how we talk about art, and how we teach it. Teaching, there's nothing more future-oriented than teaching, um, and art schools are often run by people who are political geniuses. But if you look at what happens in the seminar rooms in the curricula, you, you, see, um, you see this. You see something which does not really tap into uh, the strategic uh, talents, shall we say, of the people who run these places. Um, and there are two problems with um, the sense of indefinite postponement. One is that contemporary art um, and artists themselves, by proxy, cannot uh, think through, it cannot fathom being the police order. Um, so macro-politically speaking, it doesn't offer the traction or it doesn't allow to tap into uh, the potentials that uh, are really out there and that are open to anything remotely uh, comparable to a police order. So macro-politically speaking, it's not exactly Trotsky. Micro-politically, meanwhile, even there, the idea of generosity towards the audience results in a situation where both the audience and the artist have to deny their authority, their expertise, their skill, their mastery over what is actually a very precise hermeneutic exercise of interpreting contemporary art, reading contemporary art. Instead, insisting on the idea of boundless possibility outside of the corridors of power. Um, so it's no wonder that um, that there's a sense of, well, or let's say, it's no wonder that the subaltern position holds a very particular kind of currency within contemporary art. The subaltern is uh, thematized not only, uh, well, it's not only thematized, it's not only on the table repeatedly in a thematic sense, 
but oftentimes even in a formal one, with the very materials of an artist stylized into quivering liabilities, derive traces, fragments, structures that are built to wobble, rules that are there to break themselves, red lines that are there to be crossed. So even if, um, well, uh, as, as um, Suhail uh, Malik likes to point out, and Suhail Malik is a theorist based in London uh, from whom a lot of these uh, points and ideas, or on whose work a lot of these points and ideas are built up on, as he likes to point out, surely the moral horizon should be to do away with the subaltern, to get to a point where there is no longer such a thing as a subaltern. And perhaps within our field, we do spend time thinking about that. But for every minute we do so, we spend hours conjuring, visualizing, commemorating, representing, substituting, and portraying it. So that was the, the one problem. Um, the second, um, it's no surprise, as I mentioned in the beginning, that an ethos of disempowerment is disempowering. Um, as I was saying in the beginning, it, it allows the apparatus to thrive, it allows contemporary art to do its bidding, but it does not empower an artist to recognize an agenda and theorize how to get there. Um, every totality, and including the one I've been describing, offers exceptions. Um, we all have many examples of moments within our practices where we transcend business as usual. The trouble is that when there's a, a particular moral economy that is as hegemonic, you don't theorize and historicize these moments as something worthwhile. They're seen as these aberrations or flukes or things that don't really belong to contemporary art. Plus, you have many instances of clear political causes of artists with unapologetic um, or artists with agendas. My hypothesis is that it, when they subscribe to what is called contemporary art, you do have the usual disclaimers. You do have the artist insisting that, for example, I'm not telling people what to do, I'm only making them think for themselves, and so on and so forth. Or you have an impatient indifference with respect to the status of artwork. Any achievements are presented as coincidental with regards to the art. Whereas I'm, I'm interested in um, the effects and the possibilities of contemporary art specifically, not of direct action at large. Um, nor am I interested in the exceptions per se. I'm actually looking to depersonalize and to tap into the traction that contemporary art holds as a structure. It's interesting that quarry also means, you know, a site, a site of open excavation. And here too, it's a matter of resources, but a quarry as a site is free of um, the individualized pathos of hunted prey. Um, and maybe that's a theoretical picture worth bearing in mind, a move from the artist as individual sufferer to contemporary art as a collective resource. Now, the most um, salient, it was, it was hinted earlier, the most salient example of artists painting themselves into a powerless corner 
is their uh, dynamic or their approach to curators. Uh, not a day of teaching goes by without students reminding me that my artist curator thing is old-fashioned, old-school, needs to be deconstructed, undermined, subverted, questioned, etc. Uh, along the lines of the glossary I was showing earlier. That I have a checkpoint mentality. Um, my argument in return is that what, what Tara likes to call a post-occupational um, temperament um, generally leads to lose-lose situations. When categories are swept under the rug, artists often do solid curatorial work that is not credited, while curators wind up doing sloppy curatorial work they're not accountable for. So instead of questioning categories for the sake of questioning categories, a better way of approaching this is to appropriate the prerogatives curators enjoy as an exercise in statecraft rather than another exercise in indeterminacy. So I'm gonna, I, I'd like to elaborate on that for, for a little while. Um, and I'll use a, a quote that'll help me here um, by an artist called Anton Vidocle, based in New York, um, who is very helpful, founder of Eflux, that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Um, he's very helpful because I would say that his, his, his practice is one that is a prime example of a de-victimization de and empowerment for an artist, while at the same time, the discourse very much persistently insists on uh, a kind of self-marginalization and self-peripheralization um, which is uh, striking, but also not surprising. There was a text, though, that he wrote about eight years ago that is, to the contrary, kind of a, a, a rappel à l'ordre, a call to order, which is refreshingly confrontational, and um, which um, insists on, which tries to put curators back in their place, and which does not suggests that the categories should be deconstructed at all, um, but that uh, even if curators need to go beyond exhibition making, they can't use that to trample on what is artist territory. But I'd like to just forensically focus on this, this part of the, the quote, because it condenses pretty much everything in a nutshell. Um, so it's, it's, um, it states that First of all, um, the, the protagonists of this thing um, are artists and should remain artists. Um, that secondly, curatorial overreaching leads to a restriction of the space of art. And thirdly, um, that this restriction is a bad thing. It's a serious risk. Um, so what is, what is important to point out here, um, wh what I'm always looking for is the possibility to disagree. Like, that's something that the moral economy of contemporary art does not allow for. It's very hard to disagree um, when, you're, when you're in this, this mode of the radical, perhaps. Um, what I would, what I would um, respond is that, first of all, um, it's, it's quite significant with respect to this, this overall conversation, the fact that artists are no longer the protagonists. 
they are often the most talented people in the room, the most proficient people in the room, and they're the producers of the work. But this work is just one satellite term among many within the broader moral economy, together with the discourse, the installation shots, the curatorial trends, market fluctuations, geopolitical hotspots, urban developments, and so on and so forth, all of which have together supplanted the heliocentric model of things revolving around the artist and her work, or his work. Secondly, um, it's still a tropography of um, breaking down boundaries as a kind of um, uh, a moral uh, horizon. Um, In point of fact, contemporary art is as um, unhinged as it could ever wish for. The space of contemporary art is opened up more and more regularly to the despair of those around them. Its playgrounds are not just a vast and ever-growing professional infrastructure, it's also finance capital, real estate developments, educational policies, job markets, even the ideology of capitalism as we know it. And um, thirdly, as for whether restricting this is a bad thing, that's, it's, that's, a really, that's the most tricky question here. Um, because when I define contemporary art this way as this rampant gorilla of a thing, um, our impulse, of course, because we disidentify with power, is to contain it. And to see these power effects as inherently problematic. Um, and this is when I would actually in a weird way, and not for the same reasons, agree with Vidoklin. Diminishing the space of art is a futile exercise, and it's the wrong way to go. My proposal is not to contain the gorilla. It's to decutify it. It's to relearn a possible identification with power, and to harness it, if possible, for other ends. And so I guess this is the point in the talk where it's time to stop complaining and to attempt a dialectical backflip. Um, and to, to, to see in which sense these power effects can be harnessed in a new direction. Um, to stick to this example of the artist-curator dynamic, if you don't want curators diminishing your space, you cannot leave their tools to them alone. To move beyond business as usual, you have to use their gatekeeping prerogatives to new ends. Um, and to be clear, this is, not, this is not a plea for the artist as curator. Um, if anything, it's a plea for the artist as artist. It's, it's trying to argue that the as is the problem here. This endless pointing to per perpetually postponed possibilities is the problem here. Um, and that if there are curatorial tools to be appropriated, they should be re-inscribed within what an artist does as what an artist does, not as what a politician or a curator or what have you does. Um, so it's, it's an attempt to, yeah, to argue for a reinvention of the role of an artist um, along, along other lines, um, lines that allow a sense of investment and entrenchment rather than this, this line of flight. Um, so, 
How long have I been talking? Maybe over like a half hour? A little more, right? Yeah. Um, okay, I'll, I'll speed up a tiny bit because I think I'm a little, I'm slower than I expected to be. Um, let's begin with what our curators do traditionally. Um, they make exhibitions on a surprisingly regular basis. And artists often do too, but when artists think about moving bodies through a room, they're seen as the kind of artist who uses curatorial tools, which are curatorial tools only because curators are the ones using them unapologetically. The argument here is that it should become a self-evident part of the to-do list for an artist and not a stylistic option or a conceptual footnote. Exhibition making as an exercise in statecraft, location, and entrenchment rather than one of ungrounding categories, deterritorializing de them again and again. Um, because the, the problem is that if an, if an artist is curating as um, an example of, uh, uh, you know, uh, undermining traditional categories and so on and so forth, you're, you're back in this heroic space of critical virtue where it's very hard to call people to account. And artists in power, again and again, even in spaces of curatorial power, have proven to be just as self-serving as, as your next curator. Um, because it's not about individual intentions, it's about trying to create structures that offer a gravitational pull beyond business as usual. Um, and when I, when I'm, what I mean by statecraft, exhibitions as statecraft, on a very simple level, it's easy to forget how every now and then even a single exhibition has sparked entire schools of thought or consolidated the self-understanding of entire nations. I had a whole list here, but I'll skip it. Um, the, the image is from uh, Edward Steichen's Man, Family of Man in 1955, which was seen by nine million viewers on six continents and which catalyzed entire schools of humanist thinking and anti-humanist thinking alike. Um, but there are, there are many. And it's not a coincidence that this list consists of, of um, shows that rely on a combination of socio-architectural, panoptical, promotional potentials and on kinetic potentials as well, on moving bodies through a room. These are movements that can be preempted and that can be micro-political exercises with macro-political implications and which should not be left to curators. Um, this is why artist-run spaces are also uh, important examples of such um, uh, of, of our, our important institutions, period. Um, the, the problem being simply that if you look at their mission statements, um, it's not often that they point beyond what I've been describing as a moral economy, and that very often um, they wind up being just as self-exploitative, if not more. And again, this is, this is due to the fact that the structure of contemporary art at large has a gravitational pull that um, demands a set of measures which are both pragmatic and ideological in nature. And when it comes to uh, confronting curators, um, it's, it's not enough to convince them of... Is it, will it come back? 
it's fine. Um, ultimately, what I'm trying to get to is, is examples of um, coalition work, um, of alliances, which not only offer other ideological horizons and other conditions of production, but that also um, coerce curators into reacting to a situation defined by artists' common interests. Um, artists need to stop expecting curators to be sensitive souls. Um, it is as unrealistic as it is self-denigrating. Why expect curators, or anyone else for that matter, to curtail their own professional interests? It's a terrible idea to guilt people into charity or to suggest that artists need to be handled with care, like water lilies or tropical parakeets. The alternative to spending one's career in hope of a sweetheart curator is to threaten with credibility, as artists once used to do on a far more regular basis. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting that um, there are examples, successful examples of coalition work beyond, um, even beyond artist-run spaces, from unionization to artist boycotts and so forth, which are really many in number, but again, they're rarely theorized and historicized as something uh, that pertains to contemporary art per se. They're seen more as flukes or lucky exceptions, or, um, yeah, lucky exceptions. Um, the example that I'm most proud of as as a sort of a sideline participant, shall we say, um, is, I guess a, you could call it a pressure group formed of artists based in the US, which are insisting on um, the introduction, the institutionalization of, of artist fees. And it's actually, it's been phenomenally successful in the sense that it has moved that conversation into the mainstream and it has become part of your it's, it's become something which is less of a surprise and more of a self-evident kind of part of your routine negotiations with an institution. Um, and it, it, uh, it's the, the chief theorist was someone called um, Hans Abing that I don't have the time to go into, but that I would encourage any artist interested in this broader conversation to look into. Um, because he points to what is possibly the most uh, painful part of this whole conversation, um, namely that um, at the end of the day, uh, the sense in which artists are a quarry in the most uh, direct sense of the term is in the sense of the, the, the glut on the job market, the pyramid which um, is necessary for... Uh, a professional tip to, sh to, to shine as such. And um, Hans Abing argues that this, this will continue to prevail as long as the field is not demarcated as a particular field, and as long as the modes of access to this field are not theorized along more transparent lines. Um, so once you stop insisting that contemporary art is boundless and should be boundless, and you start to recognize the benchmarks for what they are, you can then start to formulate better ones. And it's a very scary conversation for someone like myself who joined the field at a moment of post-colonial triumphalism and the idea that 
Um, you know, doors should be open always and for everyone. And to suddenly, or to eventually realize that this idea of access undeniable is precisely part of the problem. Um, another, another thing that um, curators are pretty good at is uh, international uh, alliances. Um, they, uh, curators very happily put each other in the subject position of global agents, and they don't do this favor for our artists. They isolate them and make them jump through the hoops of any precarious service provider. And they warn them that tourism is the bad object here. And artists then duly beat themselves up when they cannot rise above that particular model. Um, as a result, artists focus on the embarrassment of bad choices that are inevitable on an international level, where you don't have the surgical precision of neighborhood initiatives and so on. But if you're looking for political purchase, then the international field is uh, the place to look. Um, as Victoria Ivanova has written in an amazing essay called Mediating Freedom, um, uh, contemporary art is now more efficient as a soft diplomatic world picture than even human rights. And if you look at uh, the seminar rooms, if you look at thematic group shows, if, especially the younger audiences at, at, at shows, if you look at boycott initiatives, um, you can see how uh, contemporary art manages to leave its mark in a colossal fashion. And um, I know that the, the, the a boy, boycott is a sensitive word in an Australian art context. I know that it's, it's, it uh, rings a lot of bells, alarm bells, and that the, 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 the boycott um, that unfolded at the Sydney Biennale had its shortcomings. But if this traction, if this signal effect can unfold within the spontaneous touch-and-go circus that is a Biennale, imagine what you can get done if you have international coalitions that transcend the self-cutification of contemporary art. Um, I wanted to give as an example a project that I'd worked on in the context of Palestine um, that uh, is, uh, to put it, to summarize it very, very briefly, it's an attempt to stop the demolition of um, traditional architectural fabric within the West Bank. Uh, as many of you will know, in the late 40s, um, close to 450 towns and villages in Palestine were um, destroyed. And this uh, process of herbicide is continuing at the hands of er uh, Palestinian investors in the West Bank. And Riwak is an NGO that quite successfully is trying to reverse this tide, and which has recruited artists um, and curators to, to work on this. Um, and it's, it's semi-successful in some ways, quite successful in others. Um, it's um, the, the two easiest of which um, are first of all the, the possibility to for artists to subscribe to an institutional agenda without apologies and to actually 
um, help develop opportunities that are economic and even touristic in nature. And this is a kind of a no-no for contemporary art. It's something that you shy away from instinctively. It's the worst form of instru instrumentalization. Um, but if it's, it's, it's a setting where you could see that this is not necessarily the bad object, that it's, the, tourism is a bad object that um, allows uh, contemporary art to, to bathe in forms of subtlety, which seem to, to offer far more traction, but actually are restricted to the economy I was describing before. The other is just the sheer signaling effect. The, the, the amount of traction that unfolds internationally when you talk about this project in detail without resorting to any sense of uh, marginalization, but on the contrary to point to, by pointing to the very clear uh, options that arise when uh, the methods and the tools of contemporary art are married to uh, an ideological and institutional agenda. I'll come to I'll come to an end. I um, I actually don't identify first and foremost as a curator, but as a as a writer. And um, I could do a far more an even more depressing talk on artists as as on writers as quarry. Um, I've been complaining about artists, but actually. Um, I wish there was a wage coalition for writers. Um, if artists actually are much better at a lot of the things I've been pointing to, fantasizing about, describing, than writers are. Um, artists might be closet curators or potential curators, but writers are cannibals. Um, they prey on each other in ways that are absolutely dismal. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's kind of it's depressing. Um, and and as for artists, um, I don't I don't think that there's such a long way to go to to get to a space that offers a genuine alternative. Um, I think that what what I what I like to tell art students again and again is to stop worrying about being too didactic and to worry instead about being endearing, and not to worry about the dangers of a master narrative because they are part of one anyway. Um, creepy as it sounds, the bigger and better challenge is to build a master narrative worth its salt. And what I've been trying to hint is that um, artists actually have um, everything at their disposal to do just that. Um, they're, in a, they're at a prime location um, that would allow them to, to venture in precisely that direction. Um, what, it, what it boils down to is seeing contemporary art as an exercise in persuasion and organization as a future-oriented operation and not as a, some kind of innocent line of flight. Um, and maybe artists do not have to be the quarry. Maybe they can even be at the other end of the stick. And um, once again, as creepy as that sounds, it, that might just be a good thing. But we live in... in creepy times, so um, what can I say? And I'll, I'll end there. Thank you.
Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. My due date isn't for five days, so I think we're OK. Um, Teardod. Uh, so, thank you all for being here, Tirad, thank you. Can you scoot back a little bit so, I don't think I can come forward. <laughs> um, so thanks for the talk, it's really great to have you here. Can everyone hear me okay? Um, thanks for coming, for being here in Australia, and um, maybe we'll just have a couple of questions and then we can open it up to everybody out there. It's great to see so many familiar faces, too. Um, so I think, I, I think I've got the diagnosis of the problem down. Uh, we can maybe let some other people out there in the audience um, take that to task if they'd like. But uh, I'm, so if we're, I, I'm especially interested in some of the propositions for how to approach the problem. So it seems like one of the things that you suggest is, or latent in the talk, is the potential of collectivizing or coalition building, which I think I'd be interested to hear you articulate that a bit more. And then the other thing that I noticed was also a call for, you mentioned, re-entrenchment, which I understood or wanted to know if that was also a form of specificity um, so if the problem is something like endless possibility as, as a problem, endless possibility, a disidentification with power, a sort of indeterminacy, then the potential, um, a couple of the potential routes that we might take to address that as a collective situation would be coalition building seem to be one, and the idea of yeah, not not inlet, not a line of flight, but a line of persuasion. And so, do you see those? I mean, is that is that sort of correct? Is identifying the potential paths that you might take, and then are they also related in a sense? Because to insist on a specificity of a position, and then to think about coalition building, seems like a bit of a difficult marriage, also. Yes. Um. So the, I I I'd say that you you just you just shared a question and a comment, right? Yeah, like yeah, I guess so. Um, and I'll I'll ag I'll agree with your comment, <laughs> um, and I'll try to answer the question, which for me was in the first part of the, the, there's the diagnosis and where do you go from there? Um, the I mean, there's there's at least three different levels on which you could you could um, begin to answer that. One is what I what I was calling the micro political level, where um, the um, I guess it applies primarily to exhibition spaces and um, to seminar rooms where um, if you begin to foster a different culture of conversation and you put the possibility to disagree and the possibility of an antithesis to your thesis, um, you, you already shift the conversation towards an entirely new place. Um, when it comes to um, 
teaching ideologies within the field, this would imply um, basically dropping the the whole. Um, I mean, I know this is kind of dropping the whole fetishization of uh, the theater of the oppressed, of the ignorant schoolmaster, of this idea of learning to unlearn, um, which which then prompts artists to um, insist that they never have answers; they only have questions and that they would love the audience to interpret the work in completely new ways, and, and so on and so forth. And to not to understand that those statements are um, purely technocratic statements. Like, to say that I, I only have questions, I don't have answers, is a bit like um, a Pilates instructor saying that she wants to strengthen your core muscles. It's, it's not, it's, it's, a, it's a perfectly rehearsed, specialized, professionalized statement. It's not any kind of, it doesn't have any kind of radical perhaps that it carries with it. Um, and, and so the, the uh, to, to, to introduce the idea of didacticism as a good object is, is already one way of countering the, the condition, the, the patient's condition, if you will. Um, and you feel but, like the, there's the most potential for this to happen in the space of education. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I mean, we, we are now the result of previous generations of art education. Mm. I mean, I, th I think that this is, this is one thing that is um, hard to fathom within contemporary art, where we're constantly wallowing in the beauties of an undescribable present. And, and so you don't... You, you don't you don't um, build towards or you don't bother to imagine how you are the result of what was once a future and so you don't theorize how you will be building a future yourself um, but the, but so you know discourse and didacticism that didacticism aside there's the fact that now that contemporary art has a playground within so many other creepy places also allows it this amazing signaling effect um, what contemporary art does now has a ripple effect. The wage, I mean, artist boycotts are a famous example. They're taken very seriously. Um, but then, for example, wage, um, which is raising the bar on uh, working conditions, um, I don't think it's unrealistic to hope that this will then ripple outwards towards um, treatment of um, other people beyond artists. Um, you know, within the arts industries to start with, there's many people who are crassly underpaid, and then that might there might be a domino effect beyond that. It's not utopian to to imagine that. Um, and then the third and last, I would say, aside from the signaling effect and and the potential of teaching and of didactic teaching um, is um, is yeah the 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 fact that um, the the marriage of of um, art and commerce or the marriage of art and economic development is seen as a cause for for melancholy or cynicism mm -hmm. and what I unfortunately I didn't have the time to unpack it but what was what was happening in in Palestine um, really was a clear example of 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 that actually being um, a very straightforward path towards um, 
uh, a scenario that that artists just don't allow themselves. Like tour, the development of tourism, business opportunities are necessarily the bad object. Mm. They are the things that we should keep aside from um, from art as we know it. Um, and yeah, let's. I've been rambling. Well, I. One of the things that I, I really love about your thinking and your writing is the way in which you often will invert things that I think we take for granted as bad objects or good objects, like didacticism or um, commerce, uh, and which I think makes us sort of question why it is that we have those assumptions and sort of does show a kind of homogeneity of how we all can agree upon or all, we all think that we can agree upon good objects, bad objects. I don't know that you fully addressed my question, but um, but I, I'm gonna actually. I just wanted to make a ask another question about wage because I feel like um, you you've explained to me before that, and to some of us here, that one of the key underlying um, lines of persuasion of wage is deceleration, and which I could see almost as another, let's say potential, um, you know, rebuttal to the problem. So could you speak a little bit about that also and how that might factor into the, to this? Um, well, my, my insistence on that gets me into hot water, water with a lot of my um, f friends who see themselves as accelerationists. And so it gets to these awkward kind of, and, and a lot of the, I guess there are, they, they rub off on me. You can see in various points of my uh, line of argumentation mm -hmm. that there there is stuff that's borrowed from the accelerationist mentality of taking, taking what you think is um, uh, a perverse effect and then amplifying it and... Um, uh, intensifying it and and hoping for a kind of dialectical flip into uh, its qualitative opposite, but but by and large, um, it's not it's not something that I would subscribe to as an overall methodology. I again and again, when it comes to um, the practice of my work as a particular as a curator, it's just undeniable that. Um, you can't get around deceleration if you're interested in the objectives that I've been listing today. Mm. It's just um, there is no way to um, think outside the box of that moral economy without having the the opportunity to um, to to catch your your breath between running from one project to the next. Um, when it comes to wage, concretely. The, the utopian moment in wage, if you will, is that if the, is this thinking that if artists are paid adequately, this will be um, a drain on exhibition budgets. Yeah. <laughs> and that uh, there will be an easing, there will be a, a deceleration of the number of projects that institutions will uh, aspire to. Um, and um, but as a matter of fact, this whole thinking is the the fruit of a moment of deceleration. When um, I moved upstate in 2010, and I went from this freelancer um, zippity doodah who, uh, you know, was would kind of like take great pride in the breathlessness of mm. contemporary art, and you know the jet lag, and yeah, we just do it, you know. We, 
we do it. We're, we're, we're kind of like, <laughs> and there's a, you kind of you you wear your um, your ADD like a medal, and you you kind of and then you style the the glossary there is a perfect example of how you can stylize what is an obvious weakness into a supposed strength. Mm. And and suddenly I was upstate, surrounded only by squirrels and curators, uh, teaching at the Center for Curatorial Studies, and Suhail Malik joined me as a colleague, as a faculty member. And if there wasn't that relative calm, there would not have been an opportunity for that conversation to mm -mm. emerge. If So it seems to me that you could almost kind of trace this path of deceleration leading to uh, less productivity, leading to yeah, sh shrinking of exhibition budgets, or budgets are distributed you know, d differently, so you have fewer projects, you're showing fewer artists, uh, that that could potentially lead to some of the other things that you're talking about, which is more space for disagreement, um, exactly. more space for entrenchment. Exactly. Right, because the kind of the machine is also what propels the indeterminacy and the constant um, disidentification with any kind of power or position or et cetera, et cetera. Right? Exactly, and exactly, and all of um, the, you just summarized it quite brilliantly. And it's it's the way that that, that is all. That's the part that you can agree on more easily in in you know over dinner with most people in the field. You know, everyone will agree yeah, on these right, things. Right. Where it gets painful is where you then think of the consequences, because it's 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 a kind of shrinkage which is also economically uh, painful. Um, it's what Hans Abing is pointing to that um, if you want to take this thing to its logical conclusion, you have to think of regulating the field. Uh -huh. You cannot just uh, trumpet the idea of access undeniable and assume that it'll all just work itself out, the invisible hand of the, of the art world somehow. Yeah. Um, because then you, will, you, you won't really address the, the hierarchies that will call the shots along benchmarks that are completely mm -hmm. other to what mm -hmm. you just mm -hmm. summarized. Is that, mm. is that, yeah. I think maybe we should open it up, okay. see if the, the audience has any questions. Yes, hi. Yeah. There. There's one floating around. It's coming around to you. Is that what? Yep. You said that writers are like cannibals. Does that mean that they treat each other worse than artists do? What yes. Do yeah. How? I mean, artists are pretty bad, um, but but writers <laughs> um, take the ticket. Uh, they. Um, I was sitting. I was sitting in a bus with a uh, a writer for Art Forum, not too long ago. And she told me, um, just in passing, yeah, the, I, said, I said it's a real privilege to write for Art Forum. Um, and she said, yeah, last year the job cost me close to $10,000. <laughs> and I said, uh, please tell me it, you made $10,000. And she said, no, you barely get paid and, and you, know, you don't get your travel covered or your accommodation covered. And, and you know, Art Forum is the prime real estate in terms of arts criticism and journalism, et cetera, what have you. And, and it's run by writers and editors and you know, people who should have a sense of responsibility towards not only their colleagues, but also towards writing as a craft and the fact that it, it can't thrive if it doesn't have a support system that is worth its salt. Um, and yeah, I could go on. But does, it, does that make sense? Yeah. Do you, yeah. 
it's it's not valorized at least at least art production is valorized and taken extremely seriously by artists um, in a way that art writing is not you know um, is is not by on, on behalf of art writers it's just I don't I don't sense working with wage you could see the the, the the fire in artists bellies artists being sick and tired of being taken for granted and you don't see that impatience among writers there's a resignation which is which mm. is which is quite um, gloomy so no writers have approached you saying how can we apply the wage model to art writing no not yet <laughs> no it would just be a case of me listening through sitting through the board meetings of wage and the whole time thinking yeah I, I know you got it bad but yeah if you were a writer yeah it'd be so um, much worse would, yeah <laughs> did you want to Um, I just wanted to pick up on the didactic discussion again, which I enjoyed, the impraise of the didactic. Um, you said something at one point about when you're teaching, that you tell your students, don't worry about being too didactic, worry about being endearing? Yeah. And I thought that was an interesting word, and I just wondered if you could elaborate on what you meant. Um, the what, what happens a lot... Um, whether whether within art school or, or without is um, a very dramatic insistence on uh, both the urgency of political action and the utter impossibility of really um, following that through as an artist. And both are um, endowed with a certain degree of pathos. And there's this thing that I like to call tristesse royale, which is this idea of being trapped in a golden cage. Um, contemporary art being a place that you would love to move beyond but you're trapped within and so on and so forth and um, and it's 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 something which is um, it's it's the, the 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 sound and the fury which then cancel cancels itself out which I call endearing um, and which is which actually does not compare to even the most um, modest proposal that is rooted in um, um, realpolitik and a sober assessment of what your agenda is and how you can get there. Um, there's a, there's a, there's, it's easier to, what, what I call endearing is um, what Matthew Poole, uh, the curator, British curator based in LA, um, he somewhat more uh, eloquently calls um, plausible deniability, which is um, stating political aims that are so uh, bombastic mm -hmm. that you cannot possibly hold it against anyone if they can't get there. Um, does that make sense? Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Danny in the back. Um, thanks, Toda. I really enjoyed that. I just wanted to, um, I, I guess, ask a question that I think picks up a little bit on the tension that Tara was identifying. And your, um, your, def your dis distinction about the roles between the artist and curator, which I thought was really useful, put me in mind of 
um, Daniel Buren's kind of distinction between the, you know, the uh, organizer artist in his critique of Documenta and the sort of incursion of the curator into the space of artists and then the artist who organizes. And, um, and I think in his Where Are the Artists essay, he, he talks about how um, when the artist comes to organize, um, as distinct from the curator occupying the artistic space, the artist who comes to organize uh, creates some uh, outcry amongst the other artists, which relates to kind of jealousy and uh, all of these, um, I guess, unreasonable, uh, I, I think he uses the term unreasonable um, out, uh, bases for the outcry. So uh, he says, I think that they're, the outcry is from other artists against the artist who organizes uh, will be intelligent and stupid and revealing all at the same time. So there's this kind of, um, I guess, I sense a sort of like Runciarian kind of dissensus that comes from the artist taking on that position, right, of sort of stepping into that space. And, and, and something's enacted in that move from the artist to move into that space which is not really the same as, say, the curator going in the other direction. So um, I just wanted to kind of ask if you could maybe, if, if I read that correctly, could you maybe uh, um, talk about your relationship to that line of argument in terms of your focus more on the potential collectivity and the need for, uh, I, I sense a, a, a desire for some more kind of consensual organizing and is that a kind of like a, a shift in the contemporary or like the time we're in now which is different than Beren's time or I wondered if you could talk about that distinction a little bit if that makes sense. Um, I think the best way I could respond is that um, first of all by, uh, by agreeing that um, Beren is probably right in identifying a form of or rather that's you ventriloquizing Buren by saying that there's this this case of Ranciarian uh, or impulsive Ranciarian uh, reactions to an artist suddenly taking the seat of power um, that yes I think that's that's a, that's a very apt way to put it when it comes to Buren specifically I, I just can't but um, at the same time I can't help but I always have this gut reaction because I'm so fascinated by him embodying the most iconic example of maybe artist cannibalism actually mm -hmm. um, in the context of Documenta um, and where he I mean the reason why artists were furious when uh, he decided to collaborate with Zeman was also because he he first ascribed to um, a boycott uh, he, he signed a petition, um, which was phenomenal. It was a petition against Zeman, not because of anything particularly scandalous. They just thought his curatorial concept was shit. And they, they, they were furious, and they didn't want to be part of it. And that's unthinkable today. It's just unthinkable that open letters would be written to, you know, art forums saying that, you know, Adam Shimshek, who is this guy? And... You know, you can't read this stuff. It's, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Never. Um, 
and 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 Buren first signed it, and then he decided to be part of it nonetheless. And on top of that, he he struck this deal with Zeman, who was very good at this kind of thing, who allowed him to run his stripes like this computer game all throughout the venue. So the uh, the, the the most compelling example is Jasper Johns had these stripes running under his paintings without him even <laughs> agreeing to this. Um, and and so like I, I guess I just I just have to add that as a footnote to Buren's sort of like, oh you're angry. Oh. Um, it's <laughs> um, but but uh, moving on to the broader uh, implications that you're interested in here. Um, I think that's a question that you would have to ask an artist, actually, first and foremost. Um, what, I, what I can say uh, from, from a curatorial um, vantage point is that as long as it's um, me um, resorting to my own uh, tools and resources without um, a collective uh, bargaining partner, I can very comfortably play artists against each other. Um, you know, there, there are beautiful examples of, my favorite one is, is one of a, a national pavilion in Venice where uh, there were four artists invited. This was not me who curated this, just to clarify. But I know from the artists, there were four different artists who were invited uh, to uh, a national pavilion, and all of them resigned in shock and horror over the thematic premise and the conditions, the working conditions, but they didn't know of each other. So they all resigned individually, and the curator could just calmly move on to then invite not another four, but another 10 artists. Mm -hmm. Um, and to uh, you know make even more of the situation. Whereas if these four artists had known of what was going on, it would have it would have uh, completely altered the the ball game from the bottom up. Um, whereas if I'm if I'm the the one the one situation where where I can remember. Um, um, something shifting was when I curated a show called Monogamy, and it was I invited an artist couple who were Gerard Byrne and Sarah Pierce, and I suddenly had to Skype with both of them at the same time, and I realized to which point I had subconsciously been playing artists against each other all along. Um, you know, you know, Gerard, Gerard really wants the big room. You know, I'd love to give you the big room, but you know, Gerard, right? You couldn't do that anymore when there was transparency and all the cards are on the table. Um, so does that, does that, yeah. Is there one last question out there? Yeah, Victoria. Mr. <laughs> 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 so um, how would you imagine that you could curate an exhibition of work that rests in this space of a coalition? How would you do that? Um, well, in a in a um, in in a very um, homeopathic way, in a very small dose, I was actually doing that in the, the monogamy situation. The two artists, there was perfect transparency. The two artists were 
knew each other far better than I knew them. Um, uh, and, 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 and it was to the, the benefit of the project. The reason why I am pleading for artist coalitions is not because I like artists <laughs> or because some of my best friends are artists. Um, but because um, I think that it, it being, being um, placed under pressure as a curator is, um, leads to a different dialectic and to a different, raises the bar and brings the conversation to a place where it otherwise is not. Um, and, um, and it's to the benefit of the curatorial work too. Um, it, it, and, and, the, the, and not only that, it actually has to come from the artists because I've, been, I've created situations as a curator where I invited artists to be part of the decision-making process and that just doesn't work because there's this paternalism in the gesture um, that just skews things in a weird way um, that, that just muddies the waters in, in, in ways that don't really that just additionally complexify things that are complicated enough. Um, the, the pressure um, has to come from, from the artists in some, in some shape or form. Um, so I, I, um, I in, in a way, I'm, I'm kind of like confused by your question because it implies, it implies that it would make everything um, less manageable and less doable when ultimately it's it's the opposite that happens does that make sense to you? Mm. uh shall we take one more question then <laughs> you got you got a couple you, more you, hands you, you choose <laughs> <laughs> uh okay very very last one did you, you had your hand up i did um yeah thank you um <laughs> okay <laughs> be shy but um you know, it, obviously every artist you work with is different. Um, so I was just wondering how, um, you know, um, you communicate with each artist that you've worked with before. Um, and, yeah, I'd like to hear a little bit about that. I know every experience is different. Um, some artists can, I guess, articulate their work. Others do it as well um, so just that sort of difference and that scope uh, it'd be nice to just sort of hear your experience with your question is about artists relationship to language and how I deal with those different relationships yeah or yeah and they they all have something to say but I guess they um, some can sort of articulate it differently and um, it'd be nice to just sort of hear how you adapt to you know just different circumstances I guess um, interesting question I uh, maybe I maybe I uh, or just see some maybe uh, I gravitate towards artists who are more comfortable with language subconsciously as a form of like deformation professionnelle being a writer maybe there's a kind of bias there yeah. um i i don't know someone else would have to take a look 
and and kind of assess that. Um, the the only other thing I could say in response is that I I I, I know that there are, that everybody's different within the field and that um, there are colossal differences in terms of not only artists' relationship to language but also their their means, their access to infrastructure, their resources, their um, uh, endless variety of things. Um, but I've, I've come to the conclusion that um, focusing on the commonalities is actually more helpful. And, and, and it's, it's, it's not that hard to do. I do have the feeling that the, the political commonalities and the discursive tropes are very, very, very comparable from one artist to the next. Um, there is there's a perf particular some some people are better at articulating their ideas for sure, but whether you you know kind of stumble along very defensively or whether you are you know uh, hyper eloquent, at the end of the day it's 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 rare to see a clear move beyond what I've been describing at the moral as as a moral economy here. It's um, so. It's um, for me like the the aptitude, you know, the terminological aptitude is not really at the core of the the issue. Does that does that make sense? Okay, I think that's it. Thank you, Tear Thanks. Dog. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.